The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Well, good morning, Mars Hill. How are you? Good. It's good to see everyone. If you have your copy of Scripture, we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Uh, and just before we begin, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather. So if I'm not my usual chipper, energetic self, or if I lose my place in my sermon notes and stare awkwardly at this for, give me like 15 seconds, and then we'll get back on track, uh, I would appreciate your uh, grace and patience there. So James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. We're embarking on a journey in the letter that James sent out to many believers in the very early stages of the church. And last week, Jack kicked us off with this series in giving us background of who James is as a person and the context to which, or the the context in which he was writing him. And one of the things that I thought was really important to note, first off, is how James describes himself. He could have described himself in, in many different ways. With his stature in the church, he Like Paul could have said, you know, I I was called by Christ. I'm an apostle. I have all this authority. You should listen to me. And yet that's not the way he does it, does he? He starts out by saying, I am a servant. That Greek word was doulos. This was a lifelong servanthood that James had devoted himself to the Lord. And so this entire letter is going to be understood in terms of, of a servant writing to other servants, that we are all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Consequently, our standing before God in the faith that has saved us and entered us into this relationship, James is going to argue very fervently, ought not be separated from our behavior. In other words, what we believe should drive the way that we behave. The truth about us now in Christ should touch every area of our life and manifest itself in the way that we approach our relationship with God and with our neighbors. And we're going to start seeing that immediately in these very first verses, in verses 2 through 4. This week, James is going to encourage believers that are going through trials to consider those trials joy. That sounds nuts, on surface level. How could you possibly consider suffering uh, in a trial joyful? Well, he'll tell us because God uses trials. And the way that God uses trials is he uses them to demonstrate to us and to the world the proof positive fact of the faith that is within us. That this gift that Christ has given us, this faith, will be manifested, it will be manifested uh, during these trials. And that proof gives way to steadfastness, this enduring perseverance to the goal that we strive for solely because of God's electing love and his power. So we're going to look at both of those things today. We're going to look at how God uses trials and why we consider these trials joy. And then we're going to look at the perseverance that comes with considering trials joy. So let's read verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various or when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So what does he mean? That phrase count it all joy, not something that we would say normally. Count it all, I should say. Well, 
James is saying is you ought to consider it as joy when you encounter these trials of various kinds. In other words, there's a paradox in the Christian life that the world probably won't understand. And the paradox is we're to equate something that is usually associated with suffering with joy. We are to equate and to consider trials with joy. Well, what kind of joy? He says all joy. And what he means by all joy is a joy that is unadulterated with anything else. It's unhindered. It's unmixed by anything but pure joy. It's a biblical, beautiful joy. Well, how in the midst of trials can you have an unhindered or unadulterated or unmixed joy? It seems like if there was ever a time for your joy to be mixed with sorrow or discouragement or hopelessness, it would be during trials. Well, I think we have to think first about what biblical joy really is. Joy transcends experience, be it good or bad. That's step one to remember. Joy transcends experience. Happiness, that's temporary. Happiness is not joy. Joy can sometimes bring happiness, but we need to disassociate those two as if they were synonymous. They're not the exact same thing. Joy transcends experience, good or bad, and it points to something bigger and better and greater than you can ever know. Joy can be with us in the good times, and joy can be with us in the bad times. And at this point, James is talking to us about joy in the bad times. And the best place to understand what joy is and how it transcends experience, both good and bad, I believe is in the experience that the Lord Jesus went through. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this when he says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That is a bad experience the cross. And yet there was still joy in it. How could that possibly be? Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God there. Because Jesus knew through this bad experience, something bigger and better and greater was coming on the other side. His enthronement to the right hand of God so that he can make all things new, so that all power and authority would be given to him and that he could rule over the cosmos he created in perfect love and peace and grace. I've been reading a lot of C.S. Lewis this semester as I'm going uh, through a course in the works of C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's always a good time to spend time with him. And we're beginning with his autobiography, which he titled Surprised by Joy. He talks about his conversion experience and looks back on his life and threads this theme of joy all throughout. And he writes this of joy. He says, all joy reminds all joy reminds. It is never a possession. It's always a desire for something longer ago, further away, or still about to be. Do you see what he's saying? Sometimes we have an experience and joy reminds us of those experiences in the past. Sometimes we have an experience and what joy does is it, it, it points us towards something that we're not quite sure that we have, but we know we want. And ultimately, joy reminds us of something that we know is going to be. This is not the Christian hope. 
that we are in an already not yet world where we have experienced and tasted the goodness of Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection and through his saving work in the Holy Spirit and regenerating our life. And yet we saw in Romans, sin still affects this world. And so joy reminds us both of the small taste that we have been given by God and casting our hopes forward to, as Lewis says, something that is still about to be. Joy is not about what you have because if joy was about what you have, it's something that can be taken away from you. And if something, that, if something of joy can be taken away from you, then the prime time for it to be taken away from us would be during trials. Instead, because we hold on to joy even through trials, joy is something that reminds us. It reminds us of something in the past, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It reminds us something of what is happening now, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that even though I'm suffering, this isn't lost time, and God is using this experience to grow me. And it's reminding us of the longing that we have for something in the future, the kingdom of God coming in its fullness when all suffering and trials are thrown into the lake of fire for eternal destruction. You see, part of the Christian hope is that one day all trials will suffer without joy. That's part of the Christian hope. One day all suffering, all trials, all sin, all death, they will suffer and yet without joy because there is no end to that suffering. Whereas for the Christian, there is an end for the suffering and it is coming again with the Lord Jesus. Do you see how joy is better than happiness? I'm not saying happiness is bad. I like to be happy, right? Who doesn't like to be happy? But what I'm saying is joy is better because happiness ebbs and flows through our life, but joy can remain static. Joy during trials is a reminder of the gospel. So what is James not saying then? We have a good idea now of what biblical joy is. With that in mind, what is James not saying? He is not saying that Christians have no response but happiness during trials. You see, if we equate for one for one joy with happiness, then we think what James is saying is, hey, when you're being persecuted and your father's ripped out of your home and thrown in jail and your kids are sent off and your friend is murdered, put on a happy face, right? That's not at all what he's saying. We're not robots, right? We're not commanded to ignore the sadness around us. Right? Instead, James says, paradoxically, in Christ, trials are an occasion for joy because it stokes us to desire what is about to be. Well, how do Christians know if they are experiencing trials? How do we know if we're in a trial? In other words, what does James mean by trials? When he says to count it all joy when you're experiencing these trials, but what are those trials? Surely, it can't be something I'm experiencing in America in the 21st century. After all, James is talking about believers in the first century where disease is rampant, where life is a lot more dangerous, 
where they didn't have all these comforts that we do today, and they were being persecuted. I don't feel like I'm being persecuted. What does James mean by trials? I think James is writing this letter with more in mind than his immediate audience, so as most of Scripture. James means by trial an outward testing of faith and an inward testing of faith. He uses this word para. Obviously, para, or trials, is an outward testing of faith. It's the same word that Matthew used when the religious leadership, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, would come up and they would test Jesus, para. They would put him on trial. They're trying to trip him up. Uh, It's the same word that Peter uses that in telling Christians, look, when you become a Christian, you shouldn't be surprised when para comes, when trials or testings come, when people persecute you. So there's the outward uh, idea of trial, but it's also inward as well. We see this well throughout uh, the New Testament. When Jesus was tempted by the enemy for 40 days, he was para. That same word shows up. He was tried. He was tested. He was tempted. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that God always provides a way to flee temptation. It's the same word. James will tell us soon that God does not tempt people into sin. Same word. You see, it's both an inward and an outward experience of trials that we go through. This is why he says trials of various kinds. Did you notice that? James is casting a very, very wide net in order to capture the totality of of the kinds of trials that Christians face in our walk. These trials are anything. These trials are anything that the enemy uses to attempt to rob believers of hope, health, or happiness. Or, sorry, hope, health, or holiness. Let me say that again because I think this is important. These trials are anything that the enemy uses to attempt to rob people, believers in specific, of their hope, of their health, and of their holiness. You see, the enemy wants us to lose hope. He wants the church to lose hope. And so what he does is he persecutes the church. And as we're going to find out in the second chapter of James, the persecution that was occurring to his immediate audience was, uh, was, was kind of an economic pressure. There was an injustice of wealthy non-believers to poor uh, believers, and the wealthy non-believers wanted to keep it that way. And, and the enemy's using that to put pressure on him to say, like, look, if you just abandon the gospel a little bit here, you're going to get the job you need, right? So he's, he's wanting us to lose hope. The enemy wants us to lose health. That's clear this season, right? Who hasn't been sick yet? Ill health is everywhere. Disease is everywhere. And ultimately, the final enemy, death, is caused by sin. He wants us to lose health. The enemy wants us to lose holiness. He wants us to engage in spiritual apathy, not putting the gospel into action. That's so much of what James's letter is going to be about. People that have a faith, but they don't see any fruit from it. They don't believe that it's uh, necessary to, to do anything now that they have been saved, as if we weren't created unto good works, as Paul says. I like what Martin Luther says. Uh, concerning this type of a thing. He said that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Again, Paul says we are created for good works, and we are redeemed for good works. 
And so even though it isn't the good works that got us to salvation, it is only the good works of Christ that get us there. Once we have been justified and saved, now we embark on a journey of good works. But the enemy would not want us to do that, obviously, because the more believers do good works, then the more the kingdom of God advances and the more his kingdom shrinks. He doesn't want you to have hope, health, or happiness. Holiness. I don't know. It's a Freudian slip. I keep saying happiness. You see, friends, trials are meant to prove your faith. Trials asks us this question, do you really have hope in what God is doing in your life right now and what is about to be? And I think we misunderstand then the purpose of these trials. The misunderstanding is this, that tests and trials are obstacles to be conquered in order to achieve a prize. As if God is setting before us a trial and saying, if you make it through this trial, I'll save you. I want to actually make sure you're mine. I want to actually make sure you are following my son. If you pass this test, then you will get the reward. I will print out a certificate of authentic faith and give it to you, right? If you pass the test, then you can hope in what is and is about to be through Christ, but not until you finish the test. In other words, we are saved because we hold tightly to Christ during trials. And if we don't, well, it means maybe we weren't saved. I don't think that that's biblical. I don't think that that's what's going on, and I don't think that that's James' point. The biblical teaching on trials is this. Trials are moments when spirit-enabled perseverance demonstrates to us what is already present, authentic faith. We already have that certificate of authentic faith. It was printed on the third day in Christ's resurrection. And if you place faith in that event, that's it. You have the certificate. Now, when trials come, and you're wondering to yourself, is this thing good? God will say, yes, I promise it is. Because if you walk through this trial, empowered by me, you will see the authenticity of this faith. And there are many, many examples of this. I think one of the most famous examples in the Old Testament are the trials that Job went through. Do you remember this guy? It was a guy who lived in the land of Uz. So if you're thinking about a town name, <laughs> there it is, Uz. If he just would have closed the loop, it would have been Oz, and it would have been less strange to us. There's a guy named Job. Now listen to the way that Job is described. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This story begins with a believer. This story begins with a man who has authentic faith. He's blameless and upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. He's one of God's. The story goes that Satan is allowed to take everything away from Job that he had, his home, his possessions, his children. And you read the time, the, the, the narrative, while this is happening, and the only thing you could think of is like, man, this is the external trial of the century. So what else could go wrong in Job's life? But here's the thing. There was one rule. He couldn't touch Job. He couldn't touch Job. He could not take away Job's faith. And we know the story. 
from our perspective, Job's life is just completely destroyed. Then comes his, most count, his, his closest counselors and his wife. And they begin to say like, Job, we know you're a blameless and upright man. Clearly that's not the case. Because we know how God works. You mess up, he punishes you. So what did you do? And if that's not the case, and you're truly blameless and upright, then it doesn't look like that's a very good God. So you should curse him. Now, having experienced the external trial of the century, he's experiencing the internal trial of the century. Temptation to curse God, but does he do it? No. The result is this. He passes through the, tri- the trial, and ultimately, if you remember the way that the story began, it's God who wins because the faith he puts in people is strong. Job's faith was proven. It wasn't obtained through that trial. I think there's another good example we can see in the story of Joseph. Joseph's the youngest of a number of brothers, and he's really loved by his father. And all of the other brothers are super jelly about this. So they do what brothers do. They want to kill him. That's not, <laughs> it's actually not what brothers want to do. Sometimes that's what brothers want to do. Speaking as a brother. But one brother said, hey, I'm with you. <laughs> Maybe we don't kill him. Maybe we dig a pit and let nature kill him. <laughs> Uh, that's what they do. But then a caravan comes and we know the story. He gets sold into, into slavery in Egypt. And, and he goes into Egypt. Uh, and what's interesting is uh, even after all your brothers wanted to kill you and then the consolation prizes, they sell you into slavery. We don't see a hint of Joseph blaming God or cursing God or losing faith. So then he goes into Egypt and the story's looking on the up and up. There's a pretty powerful man. He becomes a servant there, a trusted uh, a trusted servant to this man. And things are looking good for Joseph, but then we know the guy's name's Potiphar. His wife shows up and is like, Joseph, Potiphar's away at work. Hey. <laughs> and Joseph's like, not having it, right? Not having it. Uh, so what does Potiphar's wife do? She gets rejected. This is going to be real weird on the gossip forums. So she blames Joseph. Right? And Joseph goes to jail. Here's the weird thing. Not a single Time, do we see Joseph blaming God or cursing God? His faith remained true, even though he had been betrayed by his brothers who wanted to kill him, and now he's being lied about by a woman that caused him to go to jail. These were incredible trials, external and internal trials, and yet he had a steadfast hope. The result of that steadfast hope we saw leads to the rescue of his nation and the redemption of his brothers. You know, talk about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament trial after trial after trial of the people that put him in those places, that, that position to begin with, he forgives them and redeems them and, and saves them. The Macedonian churches, I think, is another example to skip to the New Testament. They experience, from what we can tell, severe poverty and persecution, and they remain true. So much so that Paul, writing, to the, letter, writing the letter of uh, Corinthians, said, hey, do you want a good example? Look at your neighbors, the Macedonian churches. In his letter, he agrees with James on trials and joys. And he says this about those churches. For in a severe test of affliction, there, being the Macedonian churches, abundance of joy, despite affliction, despite trials, and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They're not supposed to be giving money. They don't have any. And yet, because of the joy that they have, that's the product of it. 
They were generous because they had experienced the generosity of Christ and now wanted to show that to others. Trials merely cause an overflow of generosity, which came from their joy. Likewise, trials prove our faith. They are not the product, or faith is not the the product of those trials. They don't produce our faith. They do produce something, James is about to tell us. Trials produce perseverance, but they are meant to prove, not produce, our faith. In other words, we are not saved because we hold tightly to Christ during trials, but because he holds tightly to us. And that's the difference. Now, I know that there's going to be an objection still that trials can be redeemed and used by God. The objection will probably go something like this. God uses trials and suffering because he's not powerful or he's not loving. He quote unquote uses. It's just from your perspective. It's awful convenient that James excuses God's inability or indifference in suffering, isn't it? Trying to find a reason for why suffering occurs. Maybe it's because God doesn't care, or if he does, he can't do anything about it. Have you ever thought about that? This is an objection to the existence of suffering and trials in the world that, that is millennia old. Millennia old. And there are many, many different ways to answer this objection. But I think one of the most powerful answers to this objection is also one of the most underused answers to this objection. And it's this. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the fact that the Son of God became human and walked among sin and experienced suffering and experienced trials is proof that even though God allows suffering, he redeems it and he himself was willing to walk through it with us. That's proof positive that he can redeem these trials that we walk through and the suffering that comes from them and that he himself was willing to walk through it. You see, the Son of God walked through the very same trials that we walk through that attempted to rob him of his hope and his health and his holiness. He walked through those same trials. Was he not tempted by the enemy to worship the enemy rather than God and thereby forfeiting his holiness for temporary gain of authority in the world? Was he not tempted to disobey God by miraculously transforming rocks into bread to give him a temporary relief from the suffering and ill health? Was he not tempted countless times to lose hope as he encountered all that sin had done in injustice and in the Pharisees and in the Sadducees and even in the own ignorance and disobedience of his own disciples, even through to today, if we're honest with ourselves. Doesn't he have more reason than anyone to lose hope? The author of Hebrews reminds us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are Here's the difference, yet without sin. He has walked through these trials and yet perfectly done so without sin. I know that God is telling me the truth when he says that he can redeem trials because he himself was willing to walk through them with us. 
And no other religion or worldview or faith can say the same thing. This is absolutely unique to Christianity and to Christianity alone. You see, in all other religions and all other worldviews and all other faiths, trials fall into one of four categories. You're going through trials as a punishment from the divine. You screwed up and God's just punishing you. Trials are a means by which you achieve salvation. Tough it up, buttercup, put on a happy face, get through it, and maybe on the other side, God will love you. Trials are merely an illusion to be escaped. It doesn't really exist. Suffering doesn't really exist. Sin doesn't really exist. If you just think yourself above it somehow, then you'll be able to wisp away from it. Or trials and suffering are a consequence of an indifferent purposeless universe, and nobody ultimately cares that you're walking through them. Or option five, the truth. Trials and suffering are something the creator and sustainer of the cosmos himself experienced in testing, temptation, and death, and yet he reigned victorious over those trials in the resurrection and has now redeemed trials to demonstrate to you, his followers, that he is holding you tightly to him, thus giving you joy that one day it will be trials that suffer and no longer his children. Friends, James is not commanding us to manufacture some kind of synthetic happiness in the face of sin. Remember, Paul just told us to weep with those who weep. There's a commentator, K.A. Robinson, who put it very well on this verse when he said, James encouraged believers to embrace trials not for what they were, but for what God could accomplish through them. And what he's accomplishing through them is a proof positive of his faith in you so that it may produce steadfastness with all, all under the umbrella of joy looking forward to what is coming. There's one lingering thing I want to attach to this because I think maybe a couple of us may be thinking this before we move on to the next two verses. If God uses suffering for good, then should we run towards trials? Well, wait a minute. <laughs> if trials are a proof of my faith, and I'm unsure about it, maybe I should just go find some trials. See what happens. Is that a good way to think about it? No. We are not given any commands, nor even an example of that occurring in scripture. Instead, what we are given commands and examples for are following the Lord. And sometimes that path takes us through trials. Sometimes that path takes us through trials. We ought to only seek the Lord. And should his path take us through suffering and trials, we take comfort that he's been there before. He's leading us through it. He will get us through it. And we count it all joy that that's true. So that we are reminded of the gospel, looking forward to what is about to be, to see our faith proven and to obtain what trials produce. Verses three through four, read with me. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. So this is our second point. Trials produce steadfastness. When was the last time you used the word steadfastness in a sentence? It's been a while, right? 
We just don't use that word any, very often. What is steadfastness? Well, steadfastness in Greek is uh, from two words, hupo and meno, hupo meno. And it means to remain under. And it was a word that was used essentially to describe a person who successfully carries a load for a long time to completion, right? So what are we remaining under? And what is the load that we are carrying? Remember, James is extensively drawing off of the teachings of uh, Jesus. This letter is essentially an in-depth commentary on the teachings of the Lord Jesus. So to answer this question, I think a lot of questions about James, if you're curious, like, where did James get that? You think back to the teachings of Christ. So when did Christ talk about carrying a load? Can we remember? When did he talk about carrying a load? Answer, when he told us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. James is drawing here about steadfastness off of the teachings of Christ. Read with me Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's a yoke? It's another thing we don't really see much anymore, unless you're a farmer in an Amish community in Indiana, right? A yoke is that wooden thing that will go over the, the shoulders of a beast of burden, like an ox, for example. And they were, they were typically made in a single unit or more commonly a double unit. So you would put two oxen underneath the yoke. And the guy would sit on the back of a wagon or a back of a till, and the yoke would combine the power of the two beasts of burden, and they would essentially plow a field, they would complete the mission that their owners wanted them to complete. And so what Jesus is saying is that we have all been given a task by our creator to accomplish. And it's very simple, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love neighbor as yourself. Just kidding, that's not very simple. Now hear it again, every fiber of your being loves the God of the universe and loves neighbor as self. Well, People came to that with two different reactions, two different ways to accomplish this. Whether they know it or not, this is what we all humans do. Option one was to go it alone with the law. So these are the legalists. They would don one side of the yoke and say, I got this. I can please God. I can love him and I can love neighbor. And on the other side, they would have the law. And they'd be like, law, are you ready? And law would just stare because law is an inanimate thing. And that's not the purpose of the law. And so the legals would go, we got to get to the other side of the field. And this is the way that we're going to accomplish what God has called us to do in life. Go. And what would they do? Walk in circles. Because the law is more of an anchor than it is anything. Legalism. Option number two, yeah, we don't need the law then. Not at all. Let's discount it. And you know what? Wherever our heart tells us to go. Whatever our heart tells us to love. Whatever we feel is right. That's what we're going to do. So he puts the yoke on. Nobody's over here now. And where do they go? God's like, you need to go straight. They go, yes. <laughs> right? They wander off the field and they completely miss the goal. One is legalism. And the other is a fancy term, antinomianism, which is what James is going to be pushing against in this letter. Christ says both of those ways are wrong. 
And he gives you a new yoke. Through the Holy Spirit, you can accomplish this. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ helps us. He's that second person in the yoke with you. He reminds us, he doesn't get rid of the law, he is the law. And he is the one that gives us guidance and the strength to complete this goal. And so what James is saying is, if you're under that yoke with Christ and a trial comes, you will still be able to accomplish the task and purpose that he has given us because he's there. He's liberated us from this oppressive yoke of the enemy, sin and idolatry and legalism. But it's not like we're going on a vacation. Christ comes to give us a yoke that is actually going to be able to accomplish the goals that God wants for us. And, and being obedient and remaining in that is steadfastness, remaining under the yoke despite persecution, despite suffering, despite the enemy trying to take away and rob you of your hope and your health and of your holiness. It's important to note here too, because we've been out of the gospels for a while, that the yoke of Christ is not easy for a reason you might think. It's not lessening God's expectations. It's actually raising them. Do you remember what else he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount? I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of God. So he's not toning down the expectations that God has for the believer. James is just calling us to realize the full effect of steadfastness. If you remain under this yoke with Christ, then you might become perfect and complete. That's not hyperbole. He is not just over-the-topping it here. He means it. James expects that we will one day see completion and perfection. At the end of our journey of sanctification is glorification. And the journey getting there is a layer upon layer of virtue and obedience until we are perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Are we going to mess up along the way? Yes. Will there be times where we want to push Christ out of the other side of the yoke and put the law there or push the law outside of the yoke and do our own thing? Yeah, that's called sin. But he's always willing to return and to pick up where we left off. Not by our own will or desire or strength, but by the steadfast casting of our hope on Christ, that he is there and when we sin, he will return. He is the one that is bearing our burdens with us during times of trial. And what is the result of you remaining under that yoke? Proof positive of genuine faith. And how did you remain under that yoke? By continually placing your hopes in Christ and relying on his strength. This is how we remain steadfast in the Lord, by continually putting our faith and our hope and our trust in him. This concept is all throughout scripture, but especially in the Psalms, there are two in particular. The psalmist writes, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in him and nothing else. Elsewhere, a psalmist writes, rescue me, O God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and the cruel man. These are trials that he's going through. For you, O Lord, are my hope and my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you have I learned from the beginning or from before my birth. In other words, there's never been a time when I ought not to hold or cast my hope on you. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. 
The way to remain under, to be steadfast, is by constantly casting our hopes on God. Actually, James in, in chapter 5 is going to point back to Job as an example of steadfastness. That he refused to curse God, that he continually placed his hope in God. That's great, but how? How? How ought we continually place our faith and hope and trust in Christ? James is going to spend the rest of the letter answering that question for us. And essentially, it is this. By making our beliefs and our behavior inseparable. This is going to be the entire point of the letter of James. Making our faith and our behavior inseparable. So as we close and we are reflecting on this, maybe you are facing trials and maybe you are facing temptation. Maybe you are tempted to replace Christ with either the law or nothing at all to try to accomplish what God has called us to do. Maybe the enemy is doing everything that he possibly can in his power to rob you of your hope and of your health, and of your holiness. Well, I would say a couple of things. First, know that you are not alone. There have been believers across space and time who have walked in your shoes. And Christ himself has walked in your shoes. Second, know that no one to whom you pray, or know that the one to whom you pray for steadfastness is the one who not only walked in your shoes, but is the one who gives you the power to be steadfast. The Lord Jesus faced greater trials than we can ever know, and yet he remained steadfast under the yoke that God the Father had placed on him. Now, the same spirit that empowered him and gave him joy and gave him the power to remain steadfast under trials dwells in you, we're told. That's an incredible truth and one that we so often forget. Let us be the kind of a church that remembers this, that when trials and temptations come, we would remain steadfast, holding joy above happiness so that we can fulfill the task that our Lord has given us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for our brother and the apostle James, a fellow servant of your son that he is able to step back from the world's perspective on suffering and trials through your Holy Spirit to give us truth. Lord, we all walk through trials and temptations. The enemy, who we constantly pray against in his works and his effects, are constantly trying to rob us of joy, to take away our holiness and health, to take away our hope. Lord, let us not search anywhere outside of the power of your Holy Spirit to persevere and to remain under the yoke that you have laid upon us, which is easy and light because you are here with us. We thank you so much that you, God, sent your son to experience suffering. You're not some kind of being off in the far distance, unable to empathize or sympathize with the trials that we walk through. Neither have you made this some kind of seditious test that we have to press in order to get your attention and garner your love. No, you loved us first 
and you proved it by walking through the mess that we've created and redeem us from it. What else can we say? But Maranatha, come Lord soon, so that one day we will see suffering and trials end and that our joy would be filled and that that which joy points us towards, that which is about to be, would be. But we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy and love. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.